Well, I'm excited to continue to worship this with you this morning. So if you have a Bible or a device, would love for you to make your way to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 16. Ephesians 2, verse 11 to 16. And while you're getting there, I want to tell you that as I was growing up, I was into all sorts of things. I was into baseball and soccer and other stuff, but my main thing the whole way growing up was basketball, all right? For me, ball was life, and so I was excited to get into high school. I made the varsity team, and then a couple of games into the season, coach pulls me in and says, hey, I'm going to put you into the starting five, all right? It's pretty great, right? But then I remembered who was next on the schedule for our team to play. It was a team from Dallas, Dallas Skyline High School. They were ranked number one that year in the state of Texas. And the reason why they were so good was really simple. Uh, It came down to one man, and his name was Larry Johnson, okay? Um, Larry Johnson was their stud, and that's the reason why they were ranked number one. I think we've got a picture of Larry to put up. Yeah, that's Larry Johnson. Uh, so um, after high school, Larry graduated, uh, went to UNLV, won a national championship there. That year in the final, they beat Duke, who is awesome, by 30, okay? Uh, after college, he graduates. Uh, he's the number one overall pick in the NBA. He was the NBA Rookie of the Year. Uh, in his career, he made the U.S. Olympic team made the all-star team in the NBA. Um, That's Larry Johnson, pure stud basketball player. And we're playing them next. And guess who's going to guard him? (laughs) Yeah. So I I think I have a picture. You've seen Larry, just to compare. Um, uh, Yeah. Um, True story. I didn't share this in the first service. You know how your kids, they'll find your yearbook and they're sort of thumbing through. So this is years ago. Um, our daughters found, one of our daughters found my old yearbook and they, they're thumbing through and they get to this picture and they're like, dad, that's so awesome. You're on the basketball team. Which one was you? <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, you can, you can go ahead and put that one away. All right. So the night of the game comes. I am doing uh, my very best against Larry Johnson. And to say that he dominated me would be putting it lightly. All right? He finished the game with, get this, 30 points and 32 rebounds. All right? Now, if you're a basketball fan, you know that when a player gets double figures in two categories, that's a double-double. That's a big deal. Well, that night, Larry Johnson dropped 30 on me in both categories. I mean, he wore me out, ate my lunch. But the the, the good thing was, I wasn't out there alone. Basketball is not a me sport. It's a we sport. And so Kurt Campbell, Kittredge Evans, Daryl Breedlove and the rest of my teammates, we weren't just a bunch of random individuals out there. Our coach had brought us together from different families, uh, 
from, from different backgrounds, we, we, we had different gifts, we all looked different, but he made us together into a team. And Larry Johnson wore me out. But as a team, we were pretty good. And that night, we did okay, right? We did okay. We live in a culture that is hyper-individualized. The dominant perspective in our culture is that it's all about me. How does this affect me? What's my contribution? Where am I going to get mine? And it's easy for us to bring this, this sort of me-centered mindset, this perspective and, and way of thinking and behaving that we get from our hyper-individualized, me-centered culture. It's easy to bring that into our relationship with God. I know for me, most of the time, I'm not even aware of it. And for me, in my thinking and the way I just sort of live my life with Christ, it pretty much boils down to just me and Jesus. Are you with me? But here's the deal. From God's perspective, even though the Scriptures show that we as individuals have great worth, great dignity, great value, when God looks at us, He sees us as individual men and women, boys and girls, and he sees us together as his people, a people that are called by his name. Just like basketball, being a follower of Jesus, being a Christian is not a me sport. It's a we sport. And because every single person on this planet matters to God, He's going to bring people from different backgrounds, from different heritages, from different language groups, different socioeconomic levels. He's going to bring them together into his people, into his family. And you know what? When we think about that, God bringing people from all over the earth all over with different backgrounds and differences of, of dress and language and worship styles. I mean, that's awesome. But can we just ask a practical question? How's that going to work? How's that going to work? Because we know what's going to happen, right? When you bring people from different places and different backgrounds together, there's going to be some disagreement, not everybody's going to agree on everything. There may even be tension. There may be one group of people that's, that's like thrilled. Everything is happening just the way they want it to happen. Everything's going their way. While another group of people, it's not going their way. And they're feeling a little bit left out. So if it's true, and it is, that God brings people to a place of salvation in his name through Jesus... And then he brings those people into his family with all of their differences, from all of their different backgrounds. If that's true, then how in the world can that family together experience true unity, peace, and love together? How does that work? That's the question on the table this morning. And our text that we're going to look at, Ephesians 2, Verse 11 to 16 is going to answer it. 
Just to get us started, let me give you a little bit of an outline. I'm kind of a note taker. I like to have an outline. Let me tell you what this outline is this morning. I think these verses fall into three buckets. The first bucket is labeled separation. Separation. That's verse 11 to 12. There's another bucket. It's labeled reconciliation. Reconciliation. That's verse 13. And the final bucket is verses 14 to 16. The label on this one is a whole new thing. A whole new thing. Okay? Now, as we're jumping into these verses, it's going to be helpful for us to kind of tag back to the original context of what's happening here in the, in the historical context that we're reading about. I want you to remember that the city of Ephesus was an ancient port city that's located in modern-day Turkey. And if we were to describe the city of Ephesus back then, you could use three words, prosperous, cosmopolitan, and religious. Prosperous, cosmopolitan, and religious. In time, the good news of Jesus came to Ephesus. And by God's grace, there were a number of people who believed and received Christ. Pretty soon, a church was formed. It was a pretty diverse church. There were men and women in the church. There were Jews and Gentiles in the church. Gentiles are simply people who are not Jews, okay? There were people who come from white-collar backgrounds, people who come from blue-collar backgrounds. There were rich, there were poor, there were old, there were young. But the one thing they held in common, the one unifying principle, was their common faith that they held together in Christ, okay? The Apostle Paul, he had spent time there in Ephesus. And then years later, from a prison cell in Rome, he put pen to paper and wrote these men and women, these believers there in Ephesus, a letter. He wrote a letter to teach them and to encourage them about following Jesus. And it's that letter that we hold in our hands today through the book of Ephesians. That's what we're looking at today, okay? Now, it's important to remember that uh, that letter would have been read out loud to the church there in Ephesus. The believers were gathered together in a room, probably much smaller than this. And, and again, there were some Jews in that room. There were some Gentiles in that room. A few folks who had wandered in from who knows where, all right? But as, as, Paul be, as Paul begins uh, this section of Scripture, he specifically addresses the Gentiles, all right? He's specifically talking to those Gentiles in the room, and he's asking them to remember who they once were. And in a word, that they were separated. That's who they once were. They were separated. Look at verse 11 with me. The text says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, here's the thing. You can say a lot about the Apostle Paul, but the one thing you can't say is that the brother was shy, right? Because right here, uh, Paul is jumping right into the deep end. And he is speaking directly about the fact that for generations, there had been a very deep hostility and division between the people that were in that room, between the Jews and the Gentiles. 
the Gentiles who were hearing this, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They had lived it. Okay? Centuries earlier, all the way back at the beginning of the scriptures, all the way back in the book of Genesis, um, as part of God's grand plan to redeem all the earth from the devastation of the fall, God had chosen one man, Abraham. And he made to Abraham a covenant promise. You can read about that covenant promise in Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3. And in this promise, God promised Abraham three things. He said, I'm going to give you some land. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And then from that nation, from your descendants, I'm going to send great blessing into the whole earth. God's promise, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through that nation, I'm going to bring great uh, blessing to the whole earth. And just a little spoiler alert, that great blessing to the whole earth, that's Jesus, okay? Now, for a sign of this covenant to sort of remind the Jewish people that from them, from their people, one day a Savior would come, one day the Messiah would come, God gave them the sign of circumcision. God gave Israel, the Jewish people, this sign to remind them that one day from them would come the Messiah who would bring blessing to every other people on the earth. He was, God was intending to bless the whole earth through this people. But sadly, over time, the nation of Israel took this, um, this, this promise that God had chosen them to be the, the source of the blessing for the whole earth. They took that promise and it became for them a source of nationalistic pride or superiority. Their thinking was, well, I mean, we're God's chosen people. He chose us. God loves us. We have a purpose and a plan and we're the insiders. You Gentiles, you're out on the outside. You're not included in the promise. This nationalistic pride and superiority turned hostile. They had all sorts of names with which they put down the Gentiles. They call them the dogs, the unclean, and the uncircumcised. And there's no doubt the Gentiles reciprocated with their own hostility toward the Jews and their own sense of pride or superiority in themselves. The whole picture was pretty awful. And even though we don't have in our context this whole Jewish-Gentile tension or conflict happening, it's worth us taking an honest look at where we might have feelings of superiority or disdain for others. Where are the Places where when you look at other people or other groups of people, you think of yourself as superior to them, better than them. It's easy for us to to, uh, see someone or see a group of people and sort of pull back from them and say, no, I can't, I won't be around you. If you look that way, if you think that way, If you believe that way, 
then I'm not going to be around you. You and I don't belong together. God has been working on me all week on this. Yesterday, I'm at Home Depot. There was a group of people who were in my way, walking along like they had no idea there was anybody else in the world. And I found myself thinking, y'all are a bunch of idiots. What's wrong with you? Don't you know that you're in my way? <laughs> and even as I say that, y'all, that is ridiculous. That sense of pride, like, I'm so important that y'all need to get out of my way. But isn't it easy for us to go there? These, this pride, these feelings of superiority and the division, even that can emerge from that. Listen, that's not just a first century thing. It's very much a 21st century thing as well. And so Paul is addressing these Gentiles there in Ephesus, and he's calling them to remember this hostility, this division that they experienced as outsiders. And he builds his argument, and he's going to list five different aspects of their reality before they came to know Christ. He's going to list five different aspects of this separation. And listen, he's not doing this to beat them down. He's not doing this to bury them under a load of shame. Uh, we're going to see in a moment where Paul is taking them, but for now, he wants them to remember where they've been. And so he says in verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were separated from Christ. God had given, remember that promise to Israel, to the Jews, that one day the Messiah would come. But the Gentiles, they had no idea. They had, had, had no idea that a Messiah was going to come. And so they were separated as a people from Christ. Next, Paul says, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. God had called Israel. He, he made them his people they were his people called after his name, his nation. The Gentiles were foreigners. They were outsiders. They were not included. He says that you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Through the span of biblical history, God never wavered from his commitment to bring redemption to all the earth and to amplify and to remind us, to give new uh, pictures of, of his commitment to redemption, God made a series of covenant promises that committed himself to this plan of reconciliation, all right? And we've already talked about the covenant promise he made to Abraham. God made more promises to people like Moses, to David, to the prophet Jeremiah, and even though these promises may look a little bit different, they have one thing in common. And actually, it's not a thing. It's a person, and that person is Jesus. God made all those promises, but again, for the Gentiles, when it came to these promises of Messiah, they were on the outside looking in. They were strangers. Paul says the Gentiles at that time had no hope. It's clear to us, looking back, that God had planned from the get-go. He had planned from the very beginning to redeem all the earth, not just the Jewish people, but all the earth, all the men, women, all the nations on this earth. That was his intent from the very beginning, but the Gentiles didn't know that. And so they had nothing from God to hope for. 
And after listing all these ways the Gentiles were separated, Paul says the bottom line is that you Gentiles were without God in the world. Without God in the world. The city of Ephesus, as we said, was very religious. And the people there would have had all sorts of idols and gods all around them. They would have been everywhere. Right in the middle of town, there was a huge temple to the goddess Artemis, right? And so it wasn't that they had no gods, little g, but they didn't have access or relationship to the one true and living God of the Bible, capital G. Psalm 115 says that these little g gods, these idols, they may have mouths, but they can't speak. They may have ears, but they can't hear. In other words, they are dead. You Gentiles, at that time, were without God, the one true living God in the world. It's a pretty bleak picture. For these Gentiles, as individuals and as a people, they were without Christ, without citizenship, without promise, without hope, and without God. And you know, it can be tempting for us to think, okay, I mean, this is sort of mildly interesting as a sort of history lesson, but how does this affect me? I mean, this happened all the way back in first century Ephesus. I live here in 21st century Roswell, Georgia. How does this affect me? What's the connection here? Well, no doubt there's a lot of historical context happening here in these verses, but even for those of us here who are followers of Jesus here in the 21st century, we've got to admit that before we trusted Jesus for salvation, we were in the same tragic spot those Gentiles were, weren't we? Before we trusted Jesus for salvation, we were separated from God. We were separated from his promises. We were separated from hope and from Christ. It's worth us taking a moment to remember, where would you and I be without Christ? Where would you be without Christ? You don't have to answer that question out loud, but it's worth asking the question. In fact, this last week, I asked some friends that question. Where would you be without Christ? And I want to ask you, would you answer some of the same things? One girl said, hopeless and isolated. Racked by fear and anxiety. Uh, John said, I would have been dead eight years ago. Another guy said, my life was a train wreck. I was a source of hurt to those I love. Another person said, I was in absolute despair. There's no question that for those that were there in first century Ephesus, those Gentiles in in Ephesus, and for those of us here in the 21st century, uh, before Jesus showed up, before uh, we put our faith in Christ, the separation from God was dark and it was deep. But again, that's before God stepped in. And when God stepped in, the good news of the gospel is that he, driven by the same love, the same grace, the same mercy that we've been reading about here in Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10, 
all those same, those same motivations that, 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 that God used to bring about salvation, he stepped into the lives of those Gentiles and he stepped into our lives. And when he steps in to the person and work of Jesus, God changes everything. In a word, he brings about reconciliation. And so that's verse 13. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All those areas where the Gentiles were without, all those places where they were separate, all those places where they were on the outside looking in, now through Christ, they have been brought near. And y'all, this is a profound gospel statement. And we need to to maybe slow down a little bit and really get our hands around how this whole thing works. And so let's first look at what happened, and then we'll take a look at how it happened. Okay, what happened, and then how it happened. First, what happened? The text says, you who once were far off have been brought near. Once you were on the outside, cut off from God, but now through Christ, you're an insider. You've been brought near. This kind of spatial language is pretty common in the scriptures. God and Israel, his people, they were said to be near one another. In Deuteronomy 4, uh, verse 7, we can read of Moses saying, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? God and Israel were near. But by contrast, the Gentiles were a far-off people. But now, through Christ, as the text says, you who once were far off, you have been brought near. And oh, how I want to preach right now. You see, in my years as a pastor, I have met lots and lots and lots of people who have received the forgiveness of sin offered to them by Jesus. They have trusted in Christ for their salvation, and yet they are reluctant to draw near to the Father. They struggle with this persistent fear that they're not good enough, that God is angry with them. They know that God loves them, but they sort of think in the back of their mind that God must be deeply, deeply disappointed with me. And brother and sister, if that's you this morning, I want you to know that the Father's heart toward you expressed through the person of Jesus, empowered through the Holy Spirit, God's heart throbs with love and acceptance and warmth for you. You are his child, and he longs for you to draw near. You want a good picture of this in action? Take a look at the, at the picture of the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Over in Luke chapter 15, the father doesn't stand at a distance, arms crossed. Let's see if you're really, really sorry for all this mess you've made. No. 
The father stands ready, his eyes on the road. And when he sees his son, his lost son, who was far away coming back home, that father runs to him to draw him near. My brothers or sisters, if you've wandered far from the Lord into this or into that, I know that there can be shame, there can be a lot of regret, but don't give room for the lie that you have to stay at a distance from the Father. That's a lie. Through Jesus, through the forgiveness and the grace that He offers, you are drawn near. But as I said earlier, there's more to this gospel statement here in verse 13 than just what happened. There's also a how. How did it happen? And as we look closely at this verse, we can see that our nearness to God is both in Christ Jesus and by the blood of Christ. Those who were far off have been brought near in Christ Jesus and by the blood of Christ. Can you see that there in the text? I like the way that John Stott addresses this gospel dynamic between these two statements and what he says. Let's take a look at it. I'll just read it. He says, it's essential if we're to be faithful to the apostles' teaching to hold on to these two expressions and not to emphasize one at the expense of the other. For the blood of Christ signifies his sacrificial death for our sins on the cross by which he reconciled us to God and to each other. Whereas in Christ Jesus signifies the personal union with Christ today, through which the reconciliation he achieved is received and enjoyed. This is the basis by which God brings about reconciliation. How he brings those individuals back there in first century Ephesus and here in 21st century Roswell, this is how he brings these people who are distanced from a holy God by their sin, how he brings them near. God sent his son Jesus to live a life of perfect righteousness and to shed his blood as the atoning sacrifice for sin. And through his blood, through Christ, those who are far off are brought near. And this is where Paul begins to help us see that the gospel is not just something that's vertical, sort of between us as individuals and God. It is that, but it's also horizontal, where God, through Christ, by his blood, is bringing about reconciliation between different peoples. Different, different groups of people as he gathers people together from all different uh, backgrounds, all different uh, heritages, all different areas, all different languages. He gathers them together in Christ to be part of his family. What Jesus began and he continues to do from the go- for, from, from, through the gospel here is he puts people from all backgrounds, all different uh, affiliations onto a level playing field. You may have heard it said before that the, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. That's what this is talking about. Because Jesus invites us together into his family and gives us a core identity that we can share and celebrate 
in the midst of all of our diversity, okay? In short, through the gospel, God does a whole new thing, a whole new thing. Let's take a look at verse 14 through 16. Paul says this, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. This whole new thing that God is doing through the gospel, reconciling sinful humanity to himself vertically and then working horizontally to bring together a a family of people from different groups and backgrounds. How does it work? How does it happen? Well, the answer really isn't a how, it's a who. As Ephesians 2 verse 14 says, for he himself is our peace. Centuries ago, God promised to bring peace to those who were near and those who were far, and he's delivered on it. And he delivered on it through the person and work of Jesus. He himself is our peace. And as our peace, the text says that Jesus made us both one. He made us both one. Now, in the context, it's clear that Paul is referring to these Jews and Gentiles that were were there in the room. Before, there were some who were on the inside and some who were on the outside. But now, through Jesus, who is our peace, he's made us both one. You notice the change of language? Paul is talking about you, you, you Gentiles. Now he's talking about us. We are together one through Christ, through the gospel. We are together. Now, Paul tells us next that Jesus has broken down in his flesh this dividing wall of hostility. This dividing wall of hostility. Throughout history, whatever you've seen, different groups of people have rivalries or factions or uh, maybe uh, some hostility toward one another. You, You have this idea of one group of people putting up a wall against the other group. These walls would be the biases, the the prejudices, the the sense of superiority or pride one group of people has over the other. And here in the context of Ephesians 2, no doubt there were some of these metaphorical walls at play. The Jews had their own sense of bias, their superiority, their, their racial division they had against the Gentiles. But what's interesting is that when Paul was writing this, there wasn't just a metaphorical wall between the Jews and Gentiles. There was a literal wall. There in the temple, in Jerusalem, there was a wall that separated the Gentiles from coming close to God. Okay? There was a a wall, and on that wall there were signs that read for the Gentiles to read, don't come any closer or else you will be killed. Now, we know from history that that temple, along with that wall, was destroyed in the year 70 AD, but spiritually speaking, that wall was destroyed years earlier. When did it happen? 
It happened when Jesus went to the cross. And when he did that, he tore down that wall. And how did he do it? By abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. This is referring to the Old Testament ceremonial law with all of its rules and regulations about what the Jews could eat and what they could wear and all the festivals that they had to celebrate. And these rules and regulations, these, these ceremonial laws put up huge walls of division between the Jews and the Gentiles. But when Jesus came, he came as the fulfillment of all those types and all those shadows. And as he died on the cross, he brought down this dividing wall. He, he, he just cratered it. And as he's tearing down this old wall, I want you to look at what he built in its place, in the place of that old system of law that had so much division and hostility. Jesus did all of that that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And in so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing all the hostility. In Christ and in Christ alone, this new man exists. And who is this new man? Who is it? It's us. It's us. Men and women brought together from all different backgrounds, different nationalities, different languages, people who dress differently and eat differently and sing differently. But for all of that diversity, for all of those differences, we have great unity together in Jesus. He is our head he is our foundation. He is the cornerstone of the church. And we, by God's grace, are its people. He is the cornerstone. He's the head. Now, the Lord has given us a lot here in Ephesians 2, a lot to kind of grapple with and understand, a lot for us to kind of get up here in our heads. But what about in our hearts? What about in our hands? I want to give you this morning just a few takeaways, a couple of points of application, and then we'll be done. Just got three takeaways here. The first is come near. Come near. If you're here this morning and you're far away, if you found yourself in a place in life where you're just stuck, where you feel like there's not much hope, um, I just feel really, really far away, I want you to know that you don't have to stay there. If you forget everything else I have said this morning, I want you to know this, that through Christ, you are invited to come near. You don't have to perform a whole bunch of steps. You don't have to reach a whole bunch of achievements. You can just come through Christ and bring yourself, your weary heart, and Jesus will receive you. He will draw you near. With him there is forgiveness. Remember what we sang earlier? Though our sins may be many, his mercy is more. That's talking about Jesus. Come near. Secondly, where are your walls? Where are your walls? 
God's goal all along as he brought redemption and reconciliation through Jesus Christ, his plan all along from the very beginning was reconciliation. Uh, The cross bridged the gap between sinful humanity and a holy God, right? We know that. But the cross also tears down walls of hostility and division as God brings men and women from different and diverse backgrounds into one new family, the church. And for you and me, the takeaway here is for us to pay attention to those areas of our lives where we have that sense of pride and superiority, that reluctance for us to come near to others who are in the body of Christ. Are there any people, any groups of people, that you're just sort of, like, I'm just not sure if, it's hard, it's tense, there's a, there's a discomfort there. I want you to ask that question, where is my wall? And as you ask that question, as the Holy Spirit perhaps brings up something to your heart, brings up something to your mind, there's maybe a hardness of heart, I want you to know, bring that to Jesus. If there's confession of sin or rebellion that needs to take place, I want you to know that forgiveness is available. He stands ready to forgive and restore. The point is this. Jesus did not leave walls standing between his people. And we should not either. Last, make our unity, the unity that we enjoy through Christ, make our unity your priority. Make our unity your priority. Uh, Over and over again, we're going to see this as we journey together through uh, the book of Ephesians, that we are to maintain the spirit of unity that we have together in Christ. We are to live together, and where we have wrong with each other, we're to forgive. We're to speak the truth to one another. Where there's beef with each other, we're called to resolve that conflict biblically and seek forgiveness. We do that by seeking justice. We do that by believing the best of each other. And we do that by doing our best to love one another in the same way that we have been loved. So come near, ask the question, where are your walls? And then make our unity, the unity that we have through Christ, your priority. Fellowship, uh, none of us are here by accident. God has brought you here. He's brought me here uh, at this time and at this place to come together as a family. And he's done that for his glory and for our good. As we seek to love God and love one another well, let's do that together as God's people called together by his name. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you that you redeemed us through Christ, by grace, through faith. And we thank you that you've drawn us together to be brothers and sisters in your family. Pray that you would help us to love one another well, to have a unity that brings glory to you and announces to the world the reality and power of the gospel and your love. Lord, would you strengthen us this week as we seek to follow you And would you strengthen us as we seek to love each other well? 
We pray, Father, that as your people, we might bring great glory to you as we celebrate together all that Jesus has done. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.